Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called God Bless You, Tammy Faye. She was living by faith when she died. It is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 12th, 2007. A few weeks ago, I sat glued to our television as I watched Tammy Faye Baker Mesner give an interview on Larry King Live. I wasn't merely channel surfing like I usually do. When earlier in the day I saw that she would be Larry's guest, I knew that I would skip the news hour with Jim Lehrer and watch Tammy Faye. I confess that since watching the documentary film The Eyes of Tammy Faye in a little independent theater in Lawrence, Kansas, I've been a fan of hers. Tammy Faye had appeared on Larry King Live many times, but that night was different. The interview was at her request, and as it turned out, it aired only a few hours before she died at home in Kansas City on July 20th. Emaciated from her 10-year battle with cancer, she struggled for every breath and sentence. The colon cancer, first diagnosed in 1996, had spread to her lungs in 2004 and then invaded her back. Yes, she said she was in pain, but the morphine helped. No, she couldn't eat her beloved burger and fries smothered in ketchup, but she could barely swallow a few sips of soup and some rice pudding. She was so happy that her weight had increased to about 65 pounds. Despite the ravages, she still cracked corny jokes about wanting to be remembered for her eyelashes, doted on her husband and two adult children, made fun of her trademark makeup and clotted mascara. Every woman ought to have a wig, she once joked, because then every day can be a good hair day. She wiped away tears, engaged in overt evangelism, and did what she's always done so well and that many of us find so difficult. She was entirely comfortable with her own true self because she knew that God loved her. Tammy Faye taught us about living through difficulties. God knows she had more than her fair share, some of them her own making. I know what it's like to hit rock bottom, she once observed. Born the oldest of eight kids in International Falls, Minnesota, to a strict and poor family with no indoor bathroom, her father was a Pentecostal pastor. Her parents divorced when she was three. Her name, however, will be forever linked to her first husband, Jim Baker, whom she married in 1961. On October the 6th, 1989, Baker was convicted on 24 counts of fraud, and 19 days later sentenced to 45 years in prison. At the time, their PTL ministry in the 2300-acre Heritage USA theme park had annual revenues of about $170 million, 3,000 employees, television programs that were aired in 52 countries around the world, seen in 13 million homes each day, and in 1986, about 6 million visitors. Tammy Faye was never indicted for wrongdoing, but her husband, Jim Baker, served almost five years in prison. 
his 20-minute tryst with Jessica Hahn, and the $265,000 he paid to keep it quiet, became the fodder of late-night comedians. The public scorn and ridicule were relentless. Divorce from Baker in 1992, after 30 years of marriage, hit Tammy hard. Her second husband, Roe Mesner, whom she married in 1993, served two years in prison for bankruptcy fraud and has had his own bout with prostate cancer. Prescription drug addictions landed Tammy Fay in the Betty Ford Clinic in 1987, and several attempts to revive her television career petered out. Then came the cancer which she battled so bravely for 10 years. Throughout these hardships, Tammy Faye kept showing up, and showing up is a big part of life. No matter how dirty the uniform, she stayed in the game. She never wallowed in self-pity. You can't go forward, she said, looking into the rearview mirror of life. She endured public humiliation with self-effacing humor, disarming candor, and an endless store of resilience. She wasn't afraid to name her demons and battle them openly. She learned to accept God's forgiveness for her failures, and perhaps even harder, she learned to forgive herself. When Larry asked if she might like to forget the whole PTL episode, she admitted, I have gotten over that, thank God. That was a terrible, horribly bad experience. Tammy Faye modeled an optimism, both genuine and genuinely irrepressible, which is why I've always loved the title of her survivor biography, I Will Survive, and You Will Too. And so, across her life, she modeled faith through hardships. And in the process, as a footnote I might add, she recorded more than 25 albums. Tammy Faye also taught us what it means to live with a generous heart that gives and receives love. Long before Christian networks, or even major network television, broached the subject of HIV-AIDS, and during the years of the Reagan administration's willful silence about the subject, Tammy Faye openly embraced a gay pastor with AIDS on her television show. During that interview, she chastised the Christian community for failing to love those who needed it most. In 1996, she co-hosted a TV talk show, The Jim J. and Tammy Faye Show, with Jim J. Bullock, an HIV-positive and openly gay actor. The documentary film, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, features narration by the drag queen RuPaul and the gay directors Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato. When asked why she befriended the gay community, uh, so openly, and despite harsh criticisms, Tammy Faye responded, When I went, when we lost everything, it was the gay people who came to my rescue, and I will always love them for that. When my husband Roe was in prison, the gay community literally took care of me. They sent me money, they sent me beautiful gorgeous clothes with my name on them, they sent me cards and they would call me, they just literally took care of me while Roe was gone and became my dear friends.
Tammy Faye also starred in the so-called reality show, The Surreal Life, about a group of celebrities who lived together in a Hollywood Hills mansion for two weeks. And what a cast it was. In the show's second season in 2004, Tammy joined ex-porn star Ron Jeremy, rapper Vanilla Ice, the Baywatch bombshell Tracy Bingham, Playboy model Trishel Canatella, and actor Eric Estrada. I mean, who among us has the bandwidth of grace and love for that crowd? Even in Tammy Faye's last days, her Christian grace impacted these people. During her final interview with Larry King, a caller asked if she had stayed in touch with her castmates from the surreal life. You seem to have such a genuine maternal relationship with some of them, observed the caller. Tammy responded, I do. I talk to them quite often. In fact, they send me flowers. They send me cookies. They send me candy. They send me everything. And I talk to them on the phone a lot. A lot. As I watched Tammy Faye on Larry King Live, it occurred to me that she taught us not only how to live well, but how to die well. For a person who might have been haunted by resentments and regrets, she exuded gratitude and hope. She admitted her fears. When Larry asked what she did to face the ultimate enemy, death, Tammy Faye said her faith was strong. I just pray every day to God, and I say to God, I trust you with me. Wow, I thought, I trust you with me. There's a lifetime of wisdom in those five words, not only to face death, but to live life. Dear God, I trust you with me. According to the book of Hebrews for this week, the Christian journey begins and ends with faith. Faith, we read, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Without faith, it says it's impossible to please God. As examples, the writer mentions the Old Testament saints Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. Abraham, for example, left his home not knowing where he was going. He lived, it says, like a stranger in a foreign country. All these saints, despite their long haul of struggles and challenges, we read in Hebrews 11 verse 13, were still living by faith when they died. And that's exactly what Tamara Faye Lavalley Baker Mesner did. She was living by faith when she died. And for that, I'm deeply grateful and genuinely inspired. And so she now takes her rightful place in Faith's Hall of Fame. God bless you, Tammy Faye, 1942-1997. For books this week, I review Chalmers Johnson, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, New York, Metropolitan Owl Books, 2006, 354 pages. 
In this third volume of his inadvertent trilogy about the costs and consequences of American empire, Chalmers Johnson predicts our nation's appointment with Nemesis, the goddess of retribution and vengeance, the punisher of pride and hubris. In Greek, Nemesis means to give what is due. Mind you, Johnson, in fact, has a record of what you might call political prophecy. In Blowback from the year 2000, published about 18 months before the 9-11 attacks and largely ignored at the time, he warned that our global militarism and predatory economic policies virtually assured retaliation for decades to come. Today that warning reads like a diagnosis. And then, in the book The Sorrows of Empire from the year 2004, he detailed the breadth and depth of American militarism. Unlike ancient empires, American imperial hegemony consists not of conquered territories, but of military bases. Today, for example, the Department of Defense admits that America deploys 255,000 military personnel to at least 725 military bases in 153 countries. And that doesn't include numerous secret and officially non-existent bases, or the tens of thousands of private contractors that do the bidding of the Department of Defense for enormous profits. Our own country is home to 969 separate bases in all 50 states. And so this third volume of the trilogy, Nemesis, conducts what you might call the autopsy. America's fate, says Chalmers Johnson, is probably by now unavoidable. Starting with the end of the Spanish-American War in 1898, and then accelerating rapidly after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, what we have witnessed here in America, says Johnson, is the breakdown of constitutional government. The main culprit is militaristic imperialism. His longer litany of causes is not new, but neither are they less corrosive. The CIA as the president's private army that is accountable to no one the institutionalization of corruption in the legislature, a feckless judiciary, endemic secrecy that renders it impossible to know what partners, what parts of the government are doing, renditions to a far-flung network of prisons, the legalization of torture, domestic spying, flagrant disregard for international treaties, the militarization of space, staggering national debt owed to foreign creditors, and exaggerated claims of executive privilege. Johnson's tone is strident. His arguments are polemical. Although he believes the Bush administration is the most egregious example of the problems he details, he's not partisan in the narrow sense. The constitutional crisis that he describes is far worse than any one administration. In an especially instructive chapter, Johnson compares what he calls the imperial pathologies of Rome and Britain, arguing that militarism and imperialism are necessarily enemies of democracy. As archetypes of empires, 
that tried to have their cake and eat it too, Rome and Britain tried to foster democracy at home and imperialism around the globe. It didn't work. America now faces a stark choice between the two models. Like Britain, says Johnson, we can forfeit empire and retain democracy. Or like Rome, we can hold on to empire and lose democracy. The likelihood, he predicts, is that the United States will maintain a facade of constitutional government and drift along until financial bankruptcy overtakes us. Chalmers Johnson, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. For film this week, I review Why We Fight from the year 2005. In his farewell address to the nation on January 17, 1961, President Dwight Eisenhower warned the country about what he called the disastrous rise of misplaced power and the grave implications of the military-industrial complex. Today our country has 700 military bases in 150 countries and in any given year will conduct so-called operations of some sort in 170 countries. This documentary, Why We Fight, purports to show the breadth and depth of American militarism. That, for example, it is by no means limited to one president or administration. Instead, it's a thinly veiled and very effective attack on Bush and the Iraq War, which is important in its own right, and not to mention an easy target. But this film could have been accomplished so could have accomplished so much more if it had fulfilled its promise to cast a broader net, as Andrew Basevich does in his book, The New American Militarism, and likewise Stephen Kinzer in his book, Overthrow. George Washington and James Madison both issued strident warnings about standing armies. Watching Halliburton's war profiteering in their interview with the director of the Baghdad morgue in this film filled me with anger and sadness at how little our governments have heeded their words, whether in the Iraq disaster or all the way back to Eisenhower, who as a general experienced the real human toll of war. Why We Fight from the year 2005. And finally this week for poetry, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The title of his poem is The Convert. After one moment when I bowed my head and the whole world turned over and came upright, and I came out where the old road shone white, I walked the ways and heard what all men said, forests of tongues like autumn leaves unshed, being not unlovable but strange and light, old riddles and new creeds, not in despite but softly as men smile about the dead. 
The sages have a hundred maps to give that trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle reason out through many a sieve that stores the sand and lets the gold go free. And all these things are less than dust to me, because my name is Lazarus, and I live. The Convert by G.K. Chesterton Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 12th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.